This is Business of Home. I'm Dennis Scully, and welcome to the Thursday Show. Later on, I'll be talking to retail columnist Warren Schulberg about takeaways from the summer's biggest trade shows. But first, we're going to catch up on the news, including IKEA's latest moves, why homes are shrinking, and what the latest TikTok drama says about online design culture. To do all that, I'm joined by Business of Homes executive editor Fred Nicholas. Hi, Fred. Hey, Dennis. How's it going? Great. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, feeling a little bit uh, ashamed of my own fitness routine after listening to Monday's episode with uh, designer Sarah Story. The very first thing you guys talked about was how she was training to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, which definitely <laughs> puts my two-mile run to shame. She feels I'm not doing enough to push myself, Fred, and uh, <laughs> I, I have to agree with her after that interview. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was what? How many marathons has she run? It's, it was a good conversation, though. There were there were a lot of good takeaways. She had a good sort of spicy first dibs hot take, which I think people should listen for. But I also, you know, one thing I took away from it is we talk all the time on this show about how, oh, you know, millennials don't have any money and the housing crisis and all that. And, you know, when you work in the high end of the high end, that's not the case. Sarah was very much like, what are you talking about? There's lots of rich millennials. <laughs> so I, th- I think it's it's just a reminder that, you know, no matter what, there are going to be affluent people who want to spend money on their homes. We're just talking to the wrong millennials, clearly. And uh, <laughs> and, and Sarah knows the right ones to, to call to work on projects. So, no, I agree. She had some she had some interesting takes and, and perspectives. And she would after 20 years in the in the business. So it was uh It was an interesting conversation indeed. Okay, we're going to get into the news in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home. And I'm so glad you're here. Our team works tirelessly to bring you the industry news you need to know. We're also talking about what it feels like to run a design firm. And you can find those conversations on my podcast, Trade Tales which features heart-to-hearts with designers getting real about the challenges of creative entrepreneurship. The show is proof that there's no one right way to grow your business. Some weeks, the focus is on improving systems and processes. Others, it's about how sometimes getting out of your own way is what it truly takes to spring ahead. No matter the topic, we're taking a close look at how to build a better design business. And I hope you'll join us. Tune in to Trade Tales every other Wednesday wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And we're back. First up, news from Ikea. Fred? Sure. Well, San Francisco has been struggling. Ikea to the rescue. They're opening up a (laughs) pared-back version of their store format in downtown San Francisco this week. Dennis, you called it. (laughs) Ikea is coming to save San Francisco. Yes, and... uh, (laughs) And not a moment too soon. Uh, we, we've talked about the troubles in San Francisco. We both feel very badly about our much-beloved city. And whether it's the tech layoffs that we've talked about in the past that have led to dramatic office vacancy rates and some homeless and crime-related issues that we are all aware of. We've had departures of some big retailers, Whole Foods, Nordstrom, Crate and Barrel, among others that have decided to leave. But IKEA wants to uh, wants to come in and uh, and, and bring business back. So I'm all for it. What do you think, Fred? 
Well, I just want to go on the record saying that I always feel a little bit weird talking about how San Francisco is like a crime-ridden hellscape because I sometimes get like texts from people who don't live in New York saying, how do you live in that crime-ridden hellscape of Brooklyn? <laughs> and then I go outside and walk down my tree-lined street and I don't know what to say back. So I, you know, I don't really know what the situation is like on the ground in San Francisco because I don't live there. But yeah, clearly there's, there's, there's problems. You know, if so many retailers are leaving, clearly there's something going on. So I'm hopeful that uh, IKEA can make it work and they are spending a lot of money to make it work in the U.S. in general. We've talked about this before, but they're they're spending $2.2 billion to make it big here. And uh, I personally think it's a great idea. You know, this is, this is, this is my uh, hot take to get the show started. But I think <laughs> the next decade is going to be the IKEA decade. We talk so much about how millennials are obsessed with design, but they don't have any money. IKEA is the perfect brand. It's super affordable, but it's like great design. You know, whenever people talk about, well, this is why millennials and Gen Z is obsessed with dupes. They want copies of existing great design. You can buy great original design at an affordable price point from IKEA. It's just that they've never quite had the success and visibility in the U.S. as they have elsewhere. And I think uh, that two point two billion is is well is well spent. Money well spent. No, I agree. And as you know, I've been calling for IKEA to make a much bigger investment in the U.S. and they and they are. And I'm happy about this. I think with only 54 stores in the United States, they have a huge opportunity to build greater brand awareness. And clearly, they are focused on that. They also have a huge opportunity to address some of the challenges of both their e-commerce site, which desperately needs some help. But they also know that what's working today in retail is omni-channel, so they need more locations so that people can pick up and buy online and, and return things if they need to to locations. So all of this is part of a great-sounding strategy. I love that Fred Nicholas thinks this is the decade of IKEA. It's exciting. <laughs> I, ca- I called it. I love this, too, because IKEA is going to save San Francisco, and it sounds like the Thursday show is going to save IKEA. So this is a very, very happy cycle here. Okay, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to uh, to Charles Cohen, who we've recently learned has some some challenges with some of his uh, loan obligations. Charles Cohen, who is the head of Cohen Brothers Realty, uh, they own the D and D building uh, along with a bunch of other design centers around the country, is. From what we've learned, at least 30 days late on about half a billion dollars in loans that are collateralized by additional properties. Fred, should we try to unpack this a little bit for people? Sure. Well, Cohen Brothers is a really big company that owns a lot of different things. Uh, as you mentioned, a bunch of design centers, and they also own a lot of office buildings. And as everyone knows, this is not a great time to own a lot of office buildings. <laughs> you know, these these uh, enormous skyscrapers in New York that the company owns, there's really high vacancy rates. Uh, people aren't paying their rent, even if they are there. So he's obviously struggling to pay back some loans and you know, to put up money to secure these loans, the D&D building, our design center here in New York, was one of the the assets uh, put up as collateral. It's hard for me to read the tea leaves here because there's just so much money. I mean, the total debt is $760 million. Cohen is a billionaire. He's got a lot. You were telling me earlier, he owns all these things I had no idea he owned. What was it? <laughs> Merchant Ivory. Well, so right, exactly. You know. So, I mean, Charles Cohen is a big film lover. 
He owns a huge film library. I mean, there are some Hitchcock films in his library. There's a, there's quite a few foreign films. He owns a, a, a lot of the the Merchant Ivory Library. He also made a huge foray into fashion. He owns the very famous Savile Row tailor Richard James. He also owns Harry's of London. He's he's got a lot of interests. He's moved a lot of money around, and we know that rising interest rates have just changed the dynamic for a lot of the financial structures around a lot of these loans. And of course, his family fortune is built on office buildings. His family fortune isn't the design centers and all these other things. It was really office buildings. And many of these office buildings have, uh, some of them are 60, 65, 70% uh, occupied. And so that means that the, the cash flow isn't what it once was. And so he is not alone. It's just, it just caught our eye because to, to, to discover that the D&D building was pledged as collateral as part of some of these loan packages was just striking to, to see. And he's, uh, He's behind on on some payments, and that could be his decision to hold off on some of those payments, to move some money around. There could be a lot of reasons why he's uh, holding off on them. We we know in the past he's held off on his water bills, so I mean he you know he may right. he may have reasons for it. But it was uh, it was striking to see, and the numbers are big. I mean half a billion dollars that's that's a big number. I wonder if this is sort of a tempest in a teapot, though. Does anyone really think that the Coens are going to give up the D&D building or sell it? Or what's your read on what's the likely effect of this? I'm I'm torn because I know he feels a very strong sentimental attachment to them. There's something that he's always loved. He's always loved the design industry. At the same time, nowhere has this occupancy issue been playing out more dramatically than in these design centers. The PDC has been a ghost town for ages, and they've tried to move all the showrooms to certain floors. The same thing with the D&D building. There's just a lot of empty space there. So you have to imagine that these buildings are becoming more and more difficult, more and more costly for them to cover the expense of it. So I'm I'm torn. It would not surprise me if he just gives up the D&D building and says, what do I need that headache for? But I... I know he I know he's got a really strong sentimental attachment to it. Well, yeah, but it's harder to be sentimental when, you know, people are knocking on your door for half a billion dollars. You know, I think that's that's always the situation is people don't give up these things because they want to. It's because they're under pressure. You know, I don't think we should take it for granted that the D&D building will always be there. You know, if he hands it over to somebody else like a bank who thinks a lot more coldly about you know, value and real estate. There's every reason in the world why they would be like, well, you know, we actually could turn these into apartments. And no, no, you're, you're you're so right. And we've talked in the past about the Boston Design Center and and so many big companies that moved into that whole structure there, who were far better able to pay huge rents, and the showrooms kept getting more and more condensed onto certain floors. It's 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 absolutely not. Uh, a lock that these buildings remain uh, design centers for much longer. And there was always speculation, particularly with the D&D building, that that just could be converted into apartment buildings and he'd be better off. So uh, we, uh, we, we hope it all works out well for the design industry. That's what we care about. <laughs> so moving on, we're going to talk about homes are shrinking, which is a, a story about builders reducing the size of New single family homes for home buyers with high mortgages and we're they're trying to address the high labor and construction costs. Average unit sizes have decreased about ten percent since two thousand and eighteen. All of this coming in response to lots of the challenges that we've talked about repeatedly on the show. But should we should we get into some of the particulars on this one, Fred? 
Sure. I mean, this is a knock-on effect of uh, two things that we talk about seemingly every week here on the show, which is that, one, interest rates are really high, so mortgages are really high, and people aren't leaving their existing homes. Uh, but the other thing is that people need homes. We're in the middle of a significant housing shortage, and so there's a huge rush to build a lot of new homes. But the problem is, is that people don't have money to buy them, and so there's this sort of natural pressure to make the new homes that we're building a little bit less expensive. And one way to make them less expensive, you make them a tiny bit smaller. So this is the, you know, this is the natural result of these big uh, macroeconomic forces. Um, it's not like a huge change, you know, it's not like all of a sudden everyone's just living in ADUs everywhere, but these things do have an effect. If you take it, you know, amortized over, you know, the hundreds of thousands of homes we need to build, this will have an effect on the home industry. No, it, it absolutely will. And it, it's so striking. And again, we talk a lot on the show about the, these two generations that are coming up, the millennials and the Gen Zs and, and how, much more expensive it is to buy a house now for for them and how how much further it feels out of reach there was a statistic s- suggesting that for entry level home buyers uh, across the nation the cost of owning a house increased 72% from February 2020 to May of 2023 so that so that is a mm. huge number and the, one of the stories that we're talking about here was in the Wall Street Journal and there was a there was a comment from one of the readers of the piece that I thought was so interesting that I wanted to share it. He, he talked about how in the early 90s, he worked for a home builder, and the size of the homes in those days ranged from 1,100 square feet to 1,800 square feet. The most popular one that they sold was 1,500 square feet with three bedrooms and two baths. The price of the house was $35,000. Okay, and, and I and <laughs> I put cool. it into one of those inflation inflation adjustment calculators. So that would be two hundred thousand yeah. dollars in today's terms, and that is yeah. two hundred thousand dollars less than what these the median home price is going for around the country. So I mean, when we say these houses feel out of reach for such a huge swath of the population, the, the numbers are are really startling. So I mean, this pressure to maybe sacrifice a dining room or or find some some way to combine some of these spaces uh, is is meaningful if it can really move the needle on the price and and bring this this younger audience into this market. That's funny. You're talking about how the homes have gone up 72% over the past couple of years. I should look at my paycheck and see if I got a 72% <laughs> raise in, in that amount of time. Spoiler Somehow alert. I doubt it. I know, I'll, I'll bet you do. <laughs> yes. but. I do wonder about sort of like the knock-on like design effects of this. One of the things that jumped out at me from the piece was the fact that, you know, the room that's getting sacrificed is the dining room. And I sort of feel like this has been kind of a meta story in the design industry for a long time is that people don't even want dining rooms anymore. They sort of harken back to a much more formal era where people would sit down for you know, dinner every night and the butler would come in and, you know, it was, it was a different, uh, a different kind of living. So I do wonder if, you know, in 20 years, you know, the idea of a dining room will just sound horribly antiquated and, and quaint. I don't know if you, if you had the same. Reason. Well, I, I very much did. And funny enough, one of the things that they pointed out was that in so many of these homes where the dining room has gone away, the kitchen island is literally the only area for, for, for dining. Right, right. But I, it, it was interesting to me the, the choices that they, that they made. And so many people said, you know what? I don't need a big formal dining room, to your point. That was easy to get rid of. I mean, I know on the high end, it seems like homes are just getting bigger and bigger all the, all yeah. the time. But I actually think this is a trend. If if we can move the needle on home affordability, it, it will address one of the biggest 
tensions out there. To get a silver lining out of this, I mean, I do think smaller homes are more sustainable. You know, they use less energy. And so maybe there's maybe it's a good thing to peel back on the McMansions of the 90s and and all live a little bit more manageably. Um, I don't know. I I think 10 percent average shrinking isn't going to change anyone's business overnight. But I do think over time. You know, you're going to see a smaller home 10 years from now, and you need to think about what that means for your business. I I completely agree. Uh, And you're absolutely right. From a sustainability standpoint, I think there could be a lot of positive implications there. And let's see, as this article alluded to a little bit, let's see if some of these furniture makers can actually make smaller furniture for smaller homes. RH, I'm looking at you. We'll have to see if you can scale it down. Bob's Discount Furniture is apparently doing it. Let's see if the rest join. But uh, I don't know. We'll uh, we'll see. Okay, we're going to move on. To what's this I hear? A bit of TikTok drama, Fred? This is this is going to be a difficult one for me to recap. So bear <laughs> bear with me, listeners here. So our our editor Caroline Burke wrote a, a great piece about this uh, dust up that happened on TikTok between these two influencers. There was again, forgive me. There was an influencer named Tay Beep Boop who accused another influencer of copying her work. Dennis, I'm going to get you to say Can't Tay wait. Beep Boop before this practicing. podcast is no. over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, now, normally, you know, basically one influencer accused another of being a copycat. Now, normally that, of course, would cause, you know, the hordes of the Internet to, you know, descend upon the person who was being accused of copycatting and cancel that person. But in this case, it kind of boomeranged and Tay Beep Boop was forced to apologize for being mean spirited and sort of gatekeeping. And actually, she had a wallpaper deal, which was canceled by the company uh, after they found out about the drama. So Caroline wrote about this dust up, but maybe more broadly, what this says about what design culture looks like on TikTok. And it was definitely a fascinating window into a much younger world. (laughs) What was your read? Well, so first of all, Caroline's piece is really outstanding. I mean, the, the detail and the, and the context, it was, uh, you, you really learn a lot. And I feel like we, we talk about these issues on TikTok, and you made an excellent point to me in an internal meeting earlier that this is the future of design. The, the, the future Kelly Wurstler is, is one of these up and coming influencers on, on TikTok, which is, by the way, folks, how he convinced me to do this story and for us to talk about it right now. So, uh, so that worked. <laughs> you say Kelly Wurstler, we got to talk <laughs> exactly. about it. Exactly. That's- all right, then yeah. I'll do it. Uh, but also, he did really want me to say uh, Tay Beep Bop, and uh, there you go. Tay Beep Boop. Tay Beep Boop. And uh, yeah, yes. and she was, and she was great. And, I mean, and she honestly, and I, and I get why so many people follow her. She, she's got, she's outspoken. She's got, she's dramatic, and and she felt this woman was copying her look, and she called her out, and it was, it was interesting to to see how challenging it is to be a, a TikTok influencer and know how to, to navigate this environment, sort of landmines everywhere you, where you turn. And I, I thought that the, the etiquette and the structure of how people interact and communicate seems like it's all being written in, in real time. And that's what this story seemed to call out. Yeah, and to be clear, Tay, if you're listening, we're not, making, we're not making fun of your name. We're making fun of us sounding old saying your name. Exactly. She actually is pretty cool, and there is some really cool DIY stuff on TikTok. If you're if you genuinely impressive, the stuff that people get up to uh, in the in the DIY design world on TikTok. No, and and I, and I want to make that clear. I mean, her her work was actually really you like it, you don't like it. It was it was very striking, and she's she's done a ton to transform her space in a in a really interesting way, and I can see why she thought her design was unique to her own work. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, to sort of pick up the thread about TikTok, I think 
The reason why it's worth paying attention to this is that TikTok, unlike Instagram, has what you probably could call algorithmic discovery. Essentially, like when you open up TikTok and you're on that for you tab, you're not looking at the people you follow. I mean, they're they're mixed in there, but you're looking at the wide world of everything that's on TikTok that's being shown to you because TikTok's algorithm has determined that you would like to look at this. And so what that means is that when you put up a piece of content, it's not just being seen by the 5,000 people who think you're great. It's being seen by potentially millions of people who have no idea who you are, feel confident in weighing in on your on what you're doing. And so it's a much more kind of open discourse that creates this sort of like kind of ruthlessness and speed. You know, if, if someone does something that someone doesn't like, suddenly it's all over TikTok, like almost instantly. And uh, I do think that's a potential minefield for designers who, you know, Instagram is open and there have been scandals on Instagram, but it's it's less uh, explosive and, and quick paced than I think TikTok is. We've talked in the past about the dupes issue and, and the copying and this seemingly cavalier attitude about finding low-cost replacements for something that they've seen at RH or at Crate and Barrel or or another well-known retailer, and they and they gleefully sort of post, oh, here, look, I found that for only two hundred dollars instead of two thousand dollars, and clearly it's a it's a knockoff, and they feel that so many things are are beyond their ability to afford, and so they feel like pointing out a, a low cost alternative is is helping one another to to afford nice things, a- and I can understand that rationale, even though I'm I'm troubled by the whole dupes phenomenon as we talked about. I don't I don't quite think that's the the way to go, and I'm 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 worried about knockoffs in in general, but I I also think there is a lot of creativity going on on that platform and as as we started saying at the beginning of this segment the the future designers the the future artists the the, the people that we're going to be talking about in 10 years are experimenting on that platform right now and that's why it's worth us paying attention to completely i mean i think you said it very well it's like if you feel like the entire economy is stacked against you then buying a dupe is like getting one over on the man as opposed to you know hurting some you know far away designer that you probably don't know anything about so it's that dynamic is fascinating there's also this thing of you know i think worse it's so ingrained in us that copying is bad but i think in certain circles in tiktok the idea of holding on to your intellectual property almost feels like gatekeeping like preventing other people from getting in on something and so you know that culture in tiktok is is just very different than the design culture than a lot of us have sort of come up in. So I think we certainly need to keep an eye on it and understand it uh, because as as we've said multiple times, uh, these are the future clients. You know, the people who are hiring you in 20 years are on TikTok right now. I, I agree. And, and and I think honestly, the, the the borders and the dimensions of the design industry are, are, are going to be rewritten uh, by, by the people that we're that we're talking about and, and and others like it that we're seeing in this space, which is why we keep trying to point people there. So Okay, uh, wrapping up. Sadly, we have to report the the passing of Thierry Despont, the French architect and designer who passed away at the age of seventy five. And we've had a huge outpouring from designers who have worked with him, and many clients who got the privilege of of working with him and and admiring his work. Fred, what what do you think we should 
point out, especially. Well, he had an incredible career. I mean, he, you know, helped restore the Statue of Liberty and worked on the, you know, the redesign of the Ritz Paris. I sort of mainly knew him for his residential work. You know, he, he did Bill Gates's house, which was always, you know, the, the, the peak of the peak. And, uh, it's, it's very sad that he passed away, but it's been nice to see all these tributes from people who used to work for him. Joy Moiler was one. She wrote about how, yeah. you know, she had a lot of early chances because of him. So, um, you know, his, his firm will, will carry on without him and, uh, he certainly will not be forgotten. And, uh, he's a, certainly a legendary talent. No, absolutely. And he was always somebody that people almost spoke in a different tone when they talked yeah. about him. There was, there was just such a level of, of admiration for him. And it was, uh, it was sweet in the, in the New York Times obituary. They reached out to, uh, Mickey Drexler, the former CEO of uh, J. Crew and The Gap, who, had worked with uh, with Terry, and he said, "You know, so much like the so much like the schmata industry." Mickey Drexler said, "You you wanna you wanna design something timeless, and that's going to last forever." And and that really was what Terry Despont was was able to to do. So he will be long remembered and and missed by many. All right, that's it for the news. But there's plenty more to check out on businessofhome.com including a roundup of September's can't-miss design industry events and a column from Sean Lowe on how to deal with toxic behavior from employees. We're going to get to my interview with Warren in just a minute, but first, a quick break. Hi, it's Caitlin again. Are you ready to build a better design business? Join hundreds of design professionals in Business of Homes membership community, BOH Insider, to access exclusive reporting and industry analysis that will keep you competitive and connected as you grow your firm. Membership includes complimentary access to weekly educational workshops with industry experts, a subscription to BOH Magazine, and a directory of skilled trades across the country. Insiders also get discounts on BOH's industry-leading job board, which is especially helpful when you're ready to expand your team. And later this year, Insiders will begin to receive exclusive invitations to private field trips to unique destinations that unlock creativity and community. Learn more and join us today at businessofhome.com slash BOH Insider. All right. My guest today is Business of Home's retail editor, Warren Schulberg. Warren, welcome back to the Thursday show. Thanks, Dennis. I, I'm always uh, happy it's Thursday. <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you back and eager to talk about some of the shows that you've been to recently. You, you did a, a column for us just recently recapping some of what you've seen as you've been going around the country. I had the pleasure of having a quick coffee with you in Atlanta, so that was nice. And do I remember that you had just come from Dallas at the time? Yeah, I had been in Dallas about 10 days before, uh, okay. then did Atlanta and did the New York shows. The only one of the majors that I missed is uh, was Las Vegas, and uh, did enough uh, talking to folks who were there that I think I got a pretty good handle on what was happening. So tell people quickly what the Dallas show is that you went to first. The gift and home industry has really come down to four major shows. Uh, Dallas is the first one up. It's uh, regional for the most part, plays on Texas and the surrounding states and pulls a little bit from the east and a little bit from the west. Um, Atlanta is next up on the circuit. Uh, it's probably uh, the largest of the four shows. Even though it's focused primarily on the southeast, it does get the most national attendance base. 
Uh, Las Vegas is after that and has uh, evolved into very much a Western show. So mm. basically 13 uh, states uh, west of the Rockies. Um, and then finally, there are twin New York shows, New York Now and Shop Object. New York Now used to be much bigger, but it's coming back a little bit. And those are primarily for the Northeast. All of these shows uh, have similar structures in terms of exhibitors, uh, all but uh, the New York shows are permanent showrooms for the most part. And um, it's for the gift and home trade, uh, a lot of independent retailers, some of the, some a little bit more furniture, but um, mostly gift and home decor retailers. One of the things that you seem to point out in the piece was inventory levels uh, still seem to be too too high. That seems to be across the board. Yes. Yep. So you know, during the feeding frenzy of the pandemic, when you could sell anything that wasn't nailed down, and <laughs> frankly, a few things that were. Uh, Retailers emptied out their back rooms, uh, suppliers emptied out their warehouses, and anything that they could get their hands on sold. So at the end of 21 and the start of 22, there was still an enormous buying surge uh, for retailers who just thought the good times would never end. And then uh, they all woke up sometime in March and said, oh, guess what? This has ended and we have too much stuff. And it's taken them 15, 18 months to work that down. You got to remember that a lot of what they ordered in the winter of 21, 22 came in on the back end of 22. So they still had a lot of inventory. Uh, a lot of it was of questionable nature. And a lot of it was bought when uh, container prices of getting goods out of Asia we're still at twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a can. So you had margin levels that uh, made this stuff very expensive, and and retailers who wanted to get their money back on it were had to price it high. So you did have a lot of inventory. It's working its way down, but there's still some clogging up some places. And you know, even when you uh, when you look at the results of the big the big box guys target and and walmart they still talk about the fact that they're sitting on a little more inventory than they want so this is widespread and goes across all of retailing regardless of the size of the store interestingly in in atlanta it it seemed as if for this past market they had a lot more outdoor furniture companies there, right? Setting up permanent spaces and, and they seem to be quite happy. So that's a show that used to be held independently in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, the folks who own the Atlanta market bought the show and this past summer was the debut of it. So there were five floors of, of outdoor furniture at America's Mart, and it was a big statement. They did a nice yeah. job on the show, and so they attracted those kind of retailers who might not have come to the show beforehand, and also uh, gift and home decor stores who probably never had access to some of these products could now shop those showrooms. So it was a good fit. I think it was it was smart, um, and so yeah, that outdoor segment was a much bigger part of Atlanta this time. And that's that's permanent showrooms, so they'll be there a while. 
Which seems like a great opportunity for them and the and the outdoor market. So many people say that forevermore, this market is just going to be much bigger than it ever was in the past. Yeah, I think people are just living outside more. And yeah. th that was happening before COVID, but uh, certainly that sped it up. So um, whether you're in a, uh, you know, a two by six terrace in a in an apartment in Manhattan or uh, a McMansion in Texas with uh, with acres of land. We're just all spending more time outside, so um, it's a good business and uh, it's a mainstay now. What are you most surprised about in terms of how some of this has turned out? I mean, thinking about some of the predictions you and others might have made, I wonder what what has just been the most surprising outcome or or what you're seeing. I really thought the housing market would hold up better than it has. And clearly, um, I'm not an economist. I don't even play one on podcasts. So <laughs> I, I can't uh, pretend to to understand all that. But the, the higher mortgage rates have clearly uh, put a, a, a serious damper on that. But I thought that with uh, the millennial generation entering their prime home buying uh, days and mm. and boomers uh, kind of willing to get rid of their real estate and downsize that the housing market would hold up a lot better. And uh, we're just not seeing that. Uh, you know, anybody who has a house now doesn't want to get out of it because they don't want to lose their 3% mortgage. And, sure. um, and so that just backed up the whole process. So I thought we'd, uh, the housing market would hold up better and uh, just haven't seen it. Well, so when you say hold up better, and you were just explaining that so many people just aren't selling, and what, what, what we continue to see month after month is existing home sales declining dramatically. We yep. just saw the, saw the numbers again out this morning, l lowest since 2010 in, in many cases, yep. right? Uh, so uh, people aren't selling, so there's, uh, there's this freeze that many people keep referring to because people just aren't letting go, as you say, of those 3% mortgages that they hold. And again, I get it. Why, why would yeah, you? Yeah. What, what is the incentive to do that? I'm surprised that the house, the housing prices have stayed up as high as they have. And, and part of that is the, the tight supply, but it's not like housing prices came down. And for new homes, prices are going higher all the time. Yeah, this is very different than the 2008-2009 crash yeah. of the housing market. Totally different dynamics. And if you look closely, there's a little piece of the housing market that's doing okay, and that's new home construction, mm -hmm. um, which uh, is putting up better numbers. Still not as strong as they had been at uh, during peak periods, but sure. um, this is a way for people to get to get into the homeowning uh, side of things with new home construction. And I, I I've said that uh, if I'm a retailer. I got to find a way to work with uh, new home builders to work with them on staging or propping, putting props in those new homes or offering packages to yeah. new homeowners. Um, that's a little, a little glimmer of hope in the housing market. And, and to me, that's where people should be uh, concentrating their efforts. 
Yeah, no, no, it's it's a great point because honestly, you look at these numbers and you, and you look at the language coming out of the Federal Reserve, and you get the feeling that maybe these rates are going to be up here for quite a while, and, and and so maybe the the existing home market stays stays as soft as it is for for quite some some time, and I and I guess I wonder how that ripples through to everything that we're talking about. I I, I wonder if that is the case, if if suddenly this higher for longer mantra really turns out to be the, the playbook, what that means for these home and gift shows and, and this industry and, and all the people that, that you and I try and, and cover it. You know, I think uh, mortgage rates are going to be high for a while. Uh, when you look at previous history, how long it took them to start to come down off their peaks, we're looking at a couple of years. And, uh, mm. uh, you know, if they're at mortgages are at 7% now, uh, to get down to that 4% or under 5%, it's going to take a while. So the gift and home industry is going to have to figure out a way to, to live in that, uh, that kind of environment. Uh, you know, you've got Christmas coming up, and I think uh, we're all creatures of habit, and we'll continue to buy shiny things for friends and family yeah. this Christmas. So that's going to help. But there are some pockets of strength where, again, if I were in the, the home furnishings business, I'd be concentrating my efforts. Well, earlier you were talking about the New York Now show, and, and you and I have talked in the past about how much smaller this show is than, yeah. it, than it used to be. You and I, you and I remember going there, and as you were talking about earlier with me, as, it, as kids, yes, as as children, yes, we would go. Yes, our yes. our parents would take us, yes, and, yes, uh, and and there were there were long lines going out of the building. And unbelievable, there were, I, yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh, back in the day, everyone was smoking out in front of the Javits, and, yep, uh, and yep. but also placing huge orders for all of these little specialty stores that I feel just don't exist anymore. And and I wonder what your what your sense of that is in New York, for example. Somebody was writing to me the other day. What happened to Takashimaya? What happened to you know Barney's? What happened to all of these great places that you would go and discover new things? And I just don't. I just don't know if that comes back or what your sense is. There's clearly less stores and yes. there's there's less of some of those high profile stores. Uh, Barney's is, uh, is a great example. They had a wonderful gift and home assortment. Oh, and, absolutely. And yeah. that's gone. But you've got some others, you know, you've got... Uh, Nordstrom is is expanding their their gift and home assortment. Uh, the new Tiffany's has a has a bigger uh, display of home and gift merchandise. And if you go into some towns around the country or some parts, there's a new wave of of specialty store owner that's coming along. What you've got is is this period of transition. Mm. There was a great gift store in Dallas called Nuvo that I shopped at for 25 years and wonderful shop, great assortment, great buyers. And he closed it down in uh, July after, again, about 25 years. And what he basically said was, number one, his landlord had jacked up the price uh, right. because, believe it or not, retail space is is in demand right now and 
he didn't have anybody to hand it off to in his family. And he had no interest uh, from people interested in buying it. So, you know, I think you're seeing that generation and for lack of a better term, it's the baby boomer generation who opened mm. those stores and uh, they're done. Their kids don't want any part of this. There's nobody interested in buying it. So um, you kind of got this um, a gap for a little bit of time where these stores are going away. But I'm seeing some encouraging signs of, of startups out there, just little pockets of it. So I, I'm a little bit encouraged, but okay, okay. Then, it, then again, I believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, so <laughs> so you know. Well, I mean, I I, I want to believe in Santa Claus too. It doesn't sound like the retail industry feels very ho 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 about Christmas coming up. No, they. Um, when you talk to people, they said there's nothing that's going to happen between now and Christmas selling season that's going to mm. change the dynamic of the consumer. There's no government handouts coming along. The things that depress consumers like um, like the 24 election, uh, the war in Ukraine, China being nasty, none of those things are gonna are gonna appreciably change between now and December. So they don't see anything that's gonna change the the consumer dynamic on how they're gonna spend. So they're they're kind of, you know, I, I use the term cautiously pessimistic uh, mm. uh, in that, um, yeah, Christmas is always, is always uh, better than not Christmas. Um, but um, I, I think we're looking at very modest uh, gains. And whatever it is, it's going to come from inflation more than unit sales. Some of the big retailers have have also been uh, in, in in embracing us, I, I suppose, for perhaps disappointing numbers in the in the future, reminding us that the student loan repayments are about to yep, restart, yep. right? And that we, Great point. Every, yep. everybody assumes that's going to be uh, that's going to slow the consumer down even more. Obviously, revenge travel has been so strong, and everyone's yep. been abroad from what we what we see on our social media feeds, yeah. and and that's that's been taken away from retail sales but i'm struck and i wonder i wonder from a historical perspective your opinion about this i'm struck this morning we're seeing dick sporting goods down dramatically uh, because of this shrinkage issue because of theft yeah. uh, the industry the industry loves to call it shrinkage to, yes, to not yes. actually yes. <laughs> to not actually acknowledge that people are coming in and stealing merchandise from yes. the store yes. but but even even home depot talked about this and and some of the some of the big box retailers that you wouldn't expect this to be a, a, an issue have talked about oh, it's actually it's it's really eating into the numbers do people talk to you about this you know i think Theft from stores has has been an issue since um, Drucker opened his general store in uh, in <laughs> Wichita, Kansas, in 1880. Uh, it's like the weather. Uh, it's like Target talking about the the hit they took from Pride uh, knee jerk yeah. reaction. To me, these are red herrings. Yeah, they're they're pecking away at stuff, but they're. They're excuses. I, Is that how you feel? You, you feel they're distractions. They're, yes. they're just trying to. Okay. But I'm a I'm a a really cynical skeptic. So uh, uh, <laughs> you, you are. Yes. You, are. you know all those things are happening, 
But I think, I think, you know, they're little icing on the cake. The fact that business is soft and people aren't buying stuff. Uh, yeah. If you've got the right assortment and the right strategy, you look at TJX. TJX put up great numbers. Crushing th- it. This yeah. week. And so consumers are shopping in stores that they like and that they feel uh, mm-hmm. they feel are are um, are good for them, and you don't hear TJX talking about retail theft and talking about student loan stuff uh, because their business is okay. Yeah, they're factors, but I think they're they're just excuses that are distractions from the the big picture, which is that business is soft. Yeah, you mentioned the Target, and and of course they did they did acknowledge that yes, the the Pride related merchandise was still uh, having an having an impact, and some people I guess weren't shopping there and going to Walmart I guess instead or wherever wherever the alternative was, as you say, TJ Maxx and and some others. Did people talk about that at any of these shows? Was that was that an issue of discussion? Were people surprised about what happened there, or or did people not? want to get into that. Is that a hot button issue for people? I didn't hear a single person use the word pride in any context, you know? <laughs> okay. uh, uh, Even so, taking pride in their work, Warren? No. There wasn't it, no? That, okay. that was the least of it, you know? All right. <laughs> but no, I, I don't think so. You know, uh, outside of retail, you look at Budweiser that says Bud Light uh, yeah. took a hit because of uh, no longer the number one of light what they beer. were doing. But if you look at the numbers, they were going to be passed by Modelo, if not that month, the month after. And it's great talk to say this is what did it, but there's fundamental problems in their business. And um, uh, so, yeah, this this was a rounding error. It's real, right. but it's not it's not the core problem. Did you find that you, you've written and you've talked so much about Bed Bath and Beyond going away, and and you and I have talked about that as well. The, the sad the sad story there. Did that feel as if it had created a great big hole for some of these retail and gift shows? Did was the absence felt? Not as much as it should have been. Hmm. You know, if, if I'm an independent retailer, I got to be looking at. What did Bed Bath & Beyond stock and carry? And where are their opportunities because the consumer still is going to buy those kind of products or those brands? And I think that they should be um, – I would have thought they would have been more focused on counter-merchandising to pick up on some of that stuff. And the vendors – you know, you had some vendors, not necessarily in gift and home – uh, more in housewares and textiles, who were doing hundreds of millions of dollars of business with Bed Bath and Beyond. I talked yeah. to uh, uh, a home textile supplier that was doing uh, about a hundred million dollars at cost. Actually, excuse me, two hundred million dollars at cost a year with Bed Bath and Beyond, and that business has gone away, and now they're looking to replace it. So. A lot of vendors are, I think, desperate to uh, to replace that business, um, and we're just starting to see that. And maybe there's discussions going on behind the scenes, but um, people talked about it, but I didn't see enough counter 
programming about it. I'm surprised, too, that it doesn't feel like it had a greater impact. You think that was such a giant retailer with so many locations that I would think that the industry would, would be feeling it much more than they appear to be. Yeah. Bet Bath Beyond was doing $5 billion at retail <laughs> at, yes. the, at the end. And, yes. you know, even if some of that just disappears, um, there's a lot in play. Uh, so you got to you got to uh, you got to think that smart guys are looking at that. Uh, and, and we're already starting to see that with back to school. Uh, um, Bed Bath & Beyond melted down pretty late into the back to school uh, mm. operational season. So a lot of stores didn't get a chance to react. But even then, I don't know about you, but I've seen a lot more back to school commercials for Amazon and Target and Walmart than I ever remember seeing. Uh, yet you, you had guys like Container Store that were that were trying to pick up a piece of it. Uh, uh, you had um, uh, online websites, uh, Dormify, that were more aggressive. So I think that's a little taste of what, of what you're going to see in 24, which is uh, retailers really aggressively going after Bed Bath & Beyond's former business. I'm wondering as we as we wrap up, Warren, everyone's always trying to get a read on the consumer and how the consumer is doing. I'm with you in that I'm a little bit more skeptical, I think, than people tend to talk about the consumer. Everyone says, oh, the consumer is still flush with all this money they got during COVID and they've got so much savings built up. I feel like right before COVID, all we were told was that the average consumer didn't have $400 in the bank to yep. cover some emergency expense, right? Yep, yep, yep. And that, And now we're told they're flush and they're doing just great. So I, what? which is it? Door number two, they are, <laughs> they are, uh, you know, a key number to look at is, um, is, is credit card debt. It's back up high again. It was really, it had come down significantly during the pandemic years. And now yes. it's back up to pre COVID levels and starting to go through those levels. And that's a great indication of, Hey, this consumer is spending and starting to get a little tapped out. And eventually that catches up with people. So yeah, there's money out there. Um, and, uh, people feel, oh, oh my God, my house is worth a lot more money. So, so that's good. But again, unlike the mid 2000, whatever the aughts, whatever, whatever you call that decade, right. when housing prices were up and tons of people refinanced or took out second mortgages to get some cash, you can't do that now. So the value of your home is locked is locked up you can't get at it so um you're not going to see that that uh home pricing shot that whatever the word is you're not going to see people monetizing that right now so the high credit card debt is to me is is worrying well it certainly seems in all of this that there's a lot of room for good specialty retailers to come along. Yeah. So to your earlier point, I mean, if if some some new young people who are excited about retail can can come along and and put together a good product mix and and create a fun store, it sounds like maybe some landlords around the country are are willing to be 
a little bit more agreeable on the rents, right? Because things have slowed down a little bit. A, a little bit. Retail rents are still are still high. Um, where they're low is in urban areas uh, where um, the office population has not come back. But if you look out in the suburbs, they're filling in. But yeah, I think I think uh, landlords got got a little bit of their. Uh, of their bravado uh, tempered a little bit, and uh, they may be willing to work with uh, smaller stores again. Well, I think that's going to be a trend that we're going to be seeing for some time to come. Landlords are getting a little bit of a of a comeuppance in this, and higher rates are certainly not helping their leverage and their portfolios in, no, in any way. So, not at all. We'll be we'll be hearing a lot more of that. All right, I thank you so much for making the time and for catching us up on all of this, Warren. Always enjoy it, Dennis. Thank you. Okay, we're back. We're getting to the end of the show here, but we always like to leave a little nugget for the end, Fred. Something that people might have missed otherwise. What do you got? Sure. Well, a couple months ago, you may remember we talked about how the company Avocado Mattresses was being sued because they had made some sort of claim in their marketing about being toxicity-free, and a couple uh, intrepid consumers took it upon themselves to <laughs> send an avocado mattress to a lab and find out that actually there were a few molecules worth of toxicity in, in the mattress and, and uh, put out a class action lawsuit. Well, the case has been thrown out. Um, I, the details are still coming out. I'm not sure if it was settled or dismissed, but uh, I was thinking, okay, is this the beginning of a wave of people taking it upon themselves to, you know, lab test every product under the sun and, and do a bunch of class action lawsuits? That still may be happening at some point in the future, but this is not, uh, this one isn't going to pan out. So maybe that's uh, bad news for everyone with a mattress testing lab out there, but maybe good news for, for avocado. <laughs> good news for avocado, even though still no avocados used in the making of that mattress. So that's what I'm the most upset about, but I'm, I'm glad that it got thrown out. Well, we're going to have to send the, the mattress back to the lab and, and test for that, Dennis. There's no... That is well, a, no, we can't guarantee. We yes. can't guarantee that avocados yeah. are not used in that mattress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to give a... Uh, in, in case anyone missed our 50 states story this week, one of the best long-form designer interview series that we do actually is the 50 states which is our editor-in-chief caitlin peterson and this week's is a designer i have known and admired for a very long time rodney lawrence who i came to know when he worked for tom felicia back in the day i was coming up in my career he was coming up in his and uh so i was thrilled to uh, to see him on the site and he's he does amazing work and i was i was so excited that uh, that he got a a 50 states long form interview one of the uh one of the best around. It was a good one too. Yeah, uh, oh. he's he's super talented. I was uh, he had a project in New York Magazine a couple of months ago that I really loved. I think he actually lives not too far from me, so maybe I'll uh, I don't know see if I can get a get a personal tour. Rodney, if you're listening, DM me. <laughs> well, he's a great guy, and I'm glad to see that things are going well for him. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to keep up with the latest news, browse job listings, or take a workshop, visit us online at businessofhome.com. If you want to get in touch with the show, write to us at podcast at businessofhome.com. This episode was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lizzie Reisinger and edited by Michael Castineda. I'm Dennis Scully. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you on Monday.